I was a senior in high school and he came into my room. It was spring and he came into my room. I don't know what he was mad at me about, but he charged into my bedroom. I was laying on my little twin bed and he flipped the bed over on top of me. And I literally just ran out the door. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Christine McLean. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really glad you're here too. I feel like all of our planning and our scheduling has paid off. (laughs) I agree. So what's your connection to the Hamptons or to my guest from episode two, Jason Allen? Um, When I was 19, um, I left home when I was a senior in high school. And after my freshman year, I didn't want to go back home. And so um, I got a job as a nanny in New York City. And the family um, went to the Hamptons each summer and rented a, uh, a house there for a month. And um, and it was really interesting being there, being kind of like the help in the Hamptons, like he talked about. Like, you know, it's it was just it was really fascinating to me. And um, and I had a big orange Volkswagen thing that I used to drive around, and I used to run a lot. And um, I was I had a really um, a, a big problem with an eating disorder at that point in my life, and it was at a library in the Hamptons that I found a book that ultimately led me into therapy for it. So it's just really weird. Are you saying that when you found the book in the library, you knew you had a problem? Oh, no, I knew I had a problem. I just, it was, I knew I had a problem. I just didn't know where to go get help for it. And so the book basically, like it was something hidden. I didn't know anybody else really had the problem, I guess, is um, what I'm saying. And so um the book the only place in new york that it recommended for therapy was on the corner around the block from the building we lived in in new york city and which was just it was a place i could get to really easily and so that started my journey of healing um, my eating disorder was um because i i mean it was just so random i was in a library and i and the book wasn't, I wasn't looking for the book. It was in an, it was in like a new book section in the very front of the library. And it just, I just picked it up. It just, it, it was divine intervention as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, yeah. How long had you had the eating disorder? Um, it, it's, I remember very clearly the summer um, we moved, I grew up in Detroit and we moved um, to the suburbs because things were just getting a little bit too, um, uncomfortable for my parents just in terms of um like we had knives pulled on us in the park around the corner from us and so we moved to this um suburb and um it was really hard for me because I'd kind of been plucked out of you know my whole world at 13 leaving all my friends behind and my grandparents and we moved to a suburb where I didn't know anybody and I was going to start eighth grade and I spent that whole summer um eating peanut butter and crackers <laughs> and just and starting to use food to deal with my anxiety and my um, sadness and stress. And my home life was really chaotic because my dad um, was alcoholic and um, was very abusive to my mother. And now I was in a place where I didn't, like I, 
I had nobody to talk to. And, um, and so by the time I was 15 or 16, it was Thanksgiving when I was um, a sophomore in high school is the first time I threw up um, doing the binging and the purging. And I thought that I had found my panacea. I really thought it was, um, it, it was, I was sort of elated because mm-hmm. I felt like I could, um, that I wouldn't get fat and I was so afraid of getting fat. And, um, but by the time I went away to college, I was using binging and purging just to deal with the anxiety of, I had to pay for all my own school and I was, I wanted to get straight A's and, um, I just had a lot of pressure on myself. And so I, I basically had sort of a mini breakdown at the end of my freshman year in college. And that was part of the reason I just needed to get away and go. Um, and I, there was a job posting, um, in our college, um, like the, I forget what they call it, but the place where they post all the jobs, summer jobs. And mm-hmm. it was for a nanny in New York city. And I just saw a possibility to escape. And so I took it and, um, but it really, that's, that was the year. And even the whole time I remember being a nanny and the, um, the woman I worked for asked me one time how I stayed so trim. And I just remember thinking to myself, if she only knew, you know, I just, it was really this dark, ugly secret, um, that I kept to myself. And, um, but I knew I needed to get help because it just, I couldn't escape it. I I didn't know how to eat. I was scared to death of, um, of eating anything. I was just so afraid of, of being fat or my mom was really thin too. And there was four girls in our family and there was a lot of pressure on looks in my family. Hmm. So, um, so when you started, when, when the stress got to you and you started managing your food with peanut butter and crackers, when you first started doing that, do you remember what your awareness was? Was it weight wise or just, I, I don't want to feed my body anymore because I don't deserve it? Um, no, I mean, it was, you know, that's the other thing too, is, you know, you're starting to go through puberty then. And so your body starts to develop. And I was a really stick straight little girl. And now I was in eighth grade, I got teased and was called big boobed Bucky Beaver, which is just (laughs) horrible. Um, so I had, I had, um, that's like the trifecta, Christine. (laughs) Yes. Big boobed Bucky Beaver. And so, um, and so, yeah, I was really body conscious and, um, but I, um, you know, so at the eating, I started it just because I just needed a way to escape. But then I all of a sudden had the fear of, uh, of, of not, of gaining weight, of being, you know, I think so many young women just struggle. I mean, just the media that, and just my mom was really thin and she put a lot of focus on it. And, um, so did your uh, father too he would say things to me like um i just remember one time saying don't you wish you know you had your sister's thighs because she had really skinny thighs Hmm. and um but you know not so i don't yeah in a way i mean it was all around me sure um, what was the era that you were coming of age what were the what was that decade that was the late 70s Mm-hmm. So 78, 79, big fair faucet hairdos. <laughs> Do you, what's the birth order in your, where, where are you with the sibling birth order? I'm the oldest. I'm You're the, the oldest. oldest. Yeah. There's four girls in our family and um, I was the oldest. And as far as you know, are you the only one who had the eating disorder? 
Yes. I'm the only one that had the eating disorder, which um, then transitioned into um, an alcohol use disorder. And um, that is something that has plagued all of my sisters. So um, you spoke a little bit about an abusive climate at home. And um, I know that you're you've mentioned before to me that your father uh, was an alcoholic. And I'm wondering if you can think back to one of your earliest memories of alcohol being part of the household in a negative way. Yeah, I mean, it was it was um, as a little girl, um, my dad, I can remember just having dinners with my three sisters and my mom and my dad. You never knew when he was going to come home because he always went to the bar after work and he played on a softball team as well. And um, but you always you know, sometimes when he would come home, he would start throwing the food around and, um, you know, we'd be upstairs. You could hear him hurting our mother. And um, I mean, that went on from a very young age. In fact, I have a picture of my mom and I fleeing my dad when we were, when I was only a year and a half years old, she was walking into my grandma's house with her suitcase and me in her arm. And, um, we went off to Puerto Rico where she had some friends to stay. So she tried to get away from him when I was really young. And then I don't, she went back and then had three more kids. So it's something that, that, that I'd always lived in. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really remember a time of it not being. Do a- you have a memory of when you started to understand that it was not necessarily what everyone grew up with? I can remember, um, I think I always sort of knew that, but I can remember, I knew it was something you weren't supposed to talk about. And I think I got a lot of the signals of that from my grandparents because there was a period of time when then my dad shut off connection to our, our, my grandparents who lived very close to us. And so my grandpa would come by and just drop off a box of donuts or just to let us know that you know, in their way that we were still loved and they were still there. And then by the time I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher who, um, she just knew that things were, you know, and I was what, eight or nine. And she would take me into the lunchroom, like not to lunchroom, we'd go into another classroom with my sack lunch and she would just talk to me and she taught me the skill of writing all of my angry feelings down and then ripping up the pieces of paper and throwing them away as a way to um, get rid of my anger, which if you think of that happening in the early to mid seventies, that's pretty incredible that she had that insight. And um, how, how do you think she knew? I think, you know, when you, I grew up in Detroit and my parents are from Detroit and everybody sort of knew everybody in the bar that my dad went to, you know, it was a big Catholic community. Um, I went to the same school my mom had graduated from. My grandma lived only a couple blocks away. Like, it, everybody knew everybody. And so I don't think that, um, I just think people didn't talk about it, but I think people knew. And yeah. I think it was almost sort of um, ex- accepted. I mean, it, it just, that old... Um, school mentality of women are supposed to be kept in their place. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think it was, um, you know, but that's, I always thought my refuge at school and in, in being um, the good kid or, you know, getting praise from my teachers, that's sort of where 
I, um, I found my solace um, in that world. But I can just remember being really young and, you know, hearing my dad really be, you know, knowing like, you could hear, I mean, it was awful. I mean, it was just absolutely awful, like for children to have to listen to that. And, um, and I would sneak up after my mom, I mean, just, it was crazy how I would just pull the covers off as quietly as I could. And I would crawl on my bedroom floor and crawl down the hallway and, and go downstairs where I knew my mom would be on the couch um, to comfort her. And um, just scared to death that I would wake him up and he would find me with her. Um, so I had that, that, you know, that was my role from, from a very young age, just sort of to comfort my mom and to um, um, comfort my sisters. So um, Did she share, did your mother share with you what was going on? Did you talk about it or was it implied that you understood it was implied that we all understood. I mean, there were broken bones, there were bruises. Um, every, I mean, yeah, I mean, there were ketchup bottles thrown at a wall one time, food would be thrown over. Like, you know, we all knew, but you didn't talk about it. You didn't, you know, my mom, we would, and when we got older, we would beg her to leave. But I think she was scared to death of him, you know, and I think, and I was really angry at my mom as a teenager when we moved to this new house in my teens, I just had so, I had raging anger. I just couldn't believe that she, I just didn't understand why she wouldn't leave and why, why she would put up with it. I just didn't understand that. So like in eighth grade, that was the first Christmas we had at that house. And um, he, we were all up and he was going after my mom and I called the police on him and, um, the police came to the door and my dad, of course, knew the police. And so he talked to them and they just went away. And then now I'm scared to death because what's he going to do to me? And he never, he never was physically abusive to us, but he took all of my Christmas presents and he threw them out into the snow on the front lawn. And, um, I, um, I was, so that was my first, so I had no clothes going, starting this eighth grade year at a public school because I'd always gone to a Catholic school and, and we had uniforms. And so Christmas was something I had been really looking forward to, to because I was going to finally have some new clothes to wear. <laughs> and then he took them all away. I mean, that was such a, you know, he, he took, he took, so I, ha so I was then going to have to go back to school with nothing new to show. And, and that was just devastating so I faked that I had a that I was sick and that I had a temperature and I was running the thermometer under hot water and he caught me and um made me go back to school anyway and that was really traumatic and that began um for the next four years um I I was no I was learning to um no longer stay silent. You know, I was starting to test the waters. I knew what was going on was really wrong. And um, I was getting tired of it. And this was in eighth grade? Eighth grade, yeah. Uh, such a hard time of life anyway, for mm -hmm. most people, such a pivotal time. Yeah. Did you have friends you confided in? Well, no, because I just moved to this place, you know. And um, so, no, I was, that's probably why 
um, I, I had all, you know, cause a lot of, uh, bulimia is binging and purging. And a lot of that I learned in all of my therapy has to do with anger. It's the stuffing down and then the releasing of all this anger. And I had a lot of anger and, um, and there wasn't anybody I could talk to about it. So, right. And I wonder what that was like to see your mom in such a vulnerable position and want to protect her. And I also wonder if you had anger at her. Yeah, I had a lot of anger at her. At this point, um, I had a ton of anger at my mom. I just, and I think um, I she started working at this point too. She just really wasn't available at all to me during these years. Um, I had three younger sisters and then she was working and then she was dealing with my dad and um, he was under the impression that she was having an affair with someone. And um, it was for, she was a, she was a nurse. And so she worked for a family um, caring for a woman who was really sick. And my dad was convinced that she was having an affair with this woman's husband and um, bugged all of our phones in our house. So you're a teenager and all, my dad used to work for the phone company, but um, yeah, he bugged all the phones in the house. And um, I remember him being in a rage one night and he was going to head over to this this guy's house and I had to go call my mom and warn her, but I couldn't use our home phone. So I had to run cause he would know I was doing that. So I had to run down to the corner store and get out a pay phone and call my mom at that house and tell him, tell her that he was coming. And he went to this house and he pulled out his gun and he shot up the whole front of the house, with the glass. And the, I mean, it was great. I mean, just, pure i don't think i've ever really told that story actually um pure craziness and um and then he was so i mean i really thought i, I don't know my mom one night when i was a junior and um one night he uh my my mom i don't I don't know. I still do this day. Both my parents are gone, so I don't know which story is true. But my mom was completely out of it. And he said that she had taken sleeping pills to um, try and kill herself. And he was asking me to mix the most awful concoction in the world and give it to her to make her throw up. And we had her. I, this is my dad and I. We, we were, my limp, tiny mother. We're throwing her into the bathtub. I'm trying to, you know, force feed her just the worst and I, I don't know if I'm helping my dad kill my mom oh. or if I'm helping him save her. You know, it was just, I mean, just pure craziness. I mean, just, I don't even know where my sisters were. I just remember it being like, an, like, yeah, just surreal. Like, you know, you're just being told what to do and you don't know if what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing. If you're helping your mom or not. Right. Did, did you go to the hospital? I don't remember. I just don't, I don't remember. I just remember she came to, because my mom was a nurse. And so she knew everybody at the hospital. So if, I think she might've thrown everything up and then he put her to bed or something is what I'm thinking happened. I don't remember her ever going to the hospital for that. I mean, she'd gone to the hospital. She'd broken her, he'd broken her arm a couple times. And Did, did anyone ever, as far as you know, try to stop him? Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think my grandma might have, or my grandparents, but he, 
you know, that's one of the things about domestic violence is, is it's really isolating. I mean, that's part of what they do is they isolate. I'm struck by the situation where your mother worked at the hospital and everyone knew her. Your father drank at the bar and everybody knew him. And I'm trying to place this in time. It's, you know, the late 70s. It's a different time in our history. But everyone knows what's going on. And your grandmother tried to stop him, but no one ever confronted him and said, you need to stop. Yeah, because I think it was going on for a lot of other people as well. I think domestic violence, that a man can physically, you know, harm his wife when she gets out of line or whatever. I just think that that was so much more accepted because, you know, I'm in my mid-50s. And so um, as I've reconnected with old grade school friends, like on Facebook over the years, I've learned that my situation was they had they grew up in similar situations with an abusive father who drank too much and um and so i don't i think it i think it was more uh i think it happened more than people wanted to acknowledge but now that my parents are gone i've gotten very close to some of my mom's girlfriends and they all knew like they all knew i can remember having christmas parties my parents would have christmas parties and my dad showing up or even not showing up you know drunk and like embarrassing her and um everybody knew i mean everybody knew and and but you couldn't you didn't get in, into you didn't get into other people's business back then i think that was sort of the way people you just you just didn't butt in did did you understand your mom to have loved your father? Oh, yes. I think, you know, even after, so they stayed. Um, so there was a pivotal moment when I did leave in high school and things. And I think it took me standing up to him and just saying, like, so once I left, um, I was a senior in high school and he came into my room. It was spring and he came into my room. I don't know what he was mad at me about, but he charged into my bedroom I was laying on my little twin bed and he flipped the bed over on top of me and I literally just ran out the door I mean I didn't even think twice I didn't grab my purse I didn't grab anything I just ran out the door and um I think once I left and I was not coming back there was no way I was coming back that um then the secret was no longer a secret and um and it took um, so that was like in May and then the following December, um, my mom, my dad was getting really verbally abusive to one of my sisters. And I think she was afraid he was going to hit her and she called the police. And, um, so finally she got up enough, like, so then the jig was up, you know, he never could, he never had the power the power was taken away from him because we weren't afraid anymore to call him out or to ask for help anymore. And, um, and things, my parents stayed married. Like, and so I, I, it's, it's complicated, you know, like in my dad and I ended up becoming really close to my dad later in life. Like I refused any help from my dad and paid for all my own college and just wanted nothing to do with him. And he just kept 
after me, like coming up to my, my college was about 150 miles away. And he would just say, I'm in the neighborhood. I, can I take you to lunch? And he worked really, really hard to get me back into his life. And he would send me cards all the time. And, um, and so I ended up, um, sitting at bars and drinking with my dad, which is crazy ironic, but that's how I got to know him. And, um, he was this, he, you know, one of his friends from kindergarten, when he died, wrote this beautiful letter about him and called him an outrageous contradiction of beauty. And that's exactly what he was, because even though he could be a mean son of a bitch, he also had like this huge heart. And you could see he was really wounded himself from the way he grew up and the things that happened to him. What kind of things? Well, I his parents... His mom was really abusive to him. I heard that she used to tie him to a tree and um, she, and her, his dad died. His dad was a, a big union. He ran the milk dairy union in Michigan and which was a pretty powerful position. And um, he um, was never really home, played in a lot of poker games. There was, I think he might've had a mistress. And so my grandmother was really angry and I think she took it all out on my dad. And he left home when he was 14. And so he left home at a really young, young age and um, was really on his own from a really young age and knocked around. And so I think he had this really, and that's something that I've had to come to terms with is that you can still deeply love people that, that hurt you and that can cause so much pain and havoc in your life that you can still deeply love them you know it doesn't mean that you know they're all bad you know and I think my mom really deeply loved my dad and they stayed married and you know he still could be verbally abusive to her sometimes but nothing like what it was and he completely quit hitting her and um and she went off and went back to school and got a master's in nursing and then started traveling and with all her girlfriends so things really flipped you know do you, do you think they had peace together then? Yeah. I mean, I think they both lived very separate lives, which I think like he would, they had a place down in Florida and he would go down like in October because he retired before she did. And then she would come down in January. And, um, um, but he died, he died when he was only 68. So, um, yeah, I think, I think they did love each other. I just think it was a really volatile, not, it, it, it's not a marriage that you want to hold up and say, this is how I want my marriage to be. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's complicated. Relationships and marriage and love and family, it's everybody knows that it, everybody has some, stories i mean do you think that he ever apologized yes he did and he even apologized to me you know i mean that was part of my um with my dad i mean he did apologize to me you know he um and that's why i loved him so much because he 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 knew he had messed up you know he knew he'd done wrong so um so how about your sisters? Where do they, <clears throat> what was their relationship like with him toward the end? Um, I had one sister who hadn't talked to him in 10 years. So we were all at different levels. Um, I had one sister who 
um, refused to have her kids be around him when he was drinking, but she had started to mend her, her relationship with him. I was the closest, and then my baby sister was the second closest, and then my second sister was close, and then the, the last one had nothing to do with him. So we were all at different stages of, um, and that's, you know, my family was completely, I have no real connection with my sisters. I mean, our whole family was completely torn apart by this. And and my mom, I think, played a role as well because she was so caught up in it that she kind of kept us all separate. Like she didn't, like to sort of, like she kept, like she had a relationship with each one of us separate, but she didn't ever act in the role of making sure her girls got along or we had a sense of family. Like it just all fell apart. And um, did you have any memories when you were young of um, a calm? Were there times when your father wasn't abusing your mother or, or, or abusing you guys emotionally that there was a peacefulness or calm in the house, like <clears throat> happiness? Um, I mean, you had moments of it, but you always, you, you know, especially right after, because then that's when he's in his, he's really sorry and he's being super kind and, you know, all of that. But you always, you know, were waiting for the other shoe to drop. And my mom's favorite saying was, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, like that was, that was, that was the world that, that always existed you just never knew you knew it was going to happen again that was the only thing you knew for certain is that it would happen again do you think your mom knew that oh absolutely absolutely but she just didn't there was no there was nowhere for women to go back then you know there was just no she did have a job though did you did you ever think once she started working that maybe that would be a way for her to escape um well she always did just she only worked part-time like Mm -hmm. so she it wasn't like she worked in a doctor's office and then she um worked part-time at a hospital so it i don't think it was ever but i think it was more than that she was scared to death of him you know i think she i think she thought he would kill her if she left i mean i really think that was something very real for her is is that she really thought he would kill her and i after I saw what he did when I, you know, when he went after to that guy's house, I mean, you know, we had guns in the house, like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that was not a possibility, you know? So when you think of your mom now, how long after your father did she pass away? So my dad died in 2000 and then my mom died in 2008. And, um, so eight years and I, you know, I was still single then, so I, I was the only one still single. So I um, spent a lot of time with my mom after my dad died. And um, I was, so how my dad died is a whole other story because. Please tell it, please tell it. <laughs> okay, so, um, so I was single and I was working a really big time medical software job and had tons of frequent flyer miles and was making really good money. and. Um, was flying on Continental one day and saw um, Continental Airlines and saw a magazine article that talked about the land of golf and whiskey in Scotland. And so I decided to take my dad to Scotland because his name was Cameron John McLean and you can't get much more Scottish than that. <laughs> and he'd never been overseas. And so we, um, so we set off to go to Scotland and it was like my father's day present to him. And, um, you know, just we're having this great time touring and 
the second we were in London for one day and then we and that was, I think it was the third day of our trip um, we were in a head-on collision and um, and he died and I broke my back and um, he actually died in St. Andrews so his death certificate says St. Andrews Scotland and um, and I had to call my mom and tell her what happened and um, that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life and um just the blood curdling scream on the other line you know the other end of the line and here i was all alone and i had broken my back and um but i do believe um in some weird way that that was his destiny i know that sounds kind of crazy but um but we had gone to dinner the night before and um had had a lovely time and had talked and he told me all these stories and at the end he actually said to me, I've had a really good life and I could go at any time and it would be okay. And he died the next day. And that's just so like in some ways, like there's so much peace that I have with that. Um, and I know he was really happy and, um, but it's just so, it's so weird that sometimes, you know, and then the even crazier thing is the police station that attended to the accident. They were on Detroit road. Their oh. letterhead says Detroit road. <laughs> So was the person drinking that hit? No, no, it was my dad's fault. It was like 11 o'clock in the day. And um, we were on a two lane road and um, we were behind this red Toyota Corolla. And um, there were a bunch of cars behind it and every, and it was going really slow. Everybody was waiting, was going around it to pass it. And we were the very last car. And my dad was, um, you know, he wasn't the most patient human being when he was driving, which kind of goes along with his whole personality. <laughs> so he decided to, so we were the last ones to have the opportunity to go around this really slow car. And he um, decided to do that right when we were heading into a curve. And so as soon as we went around, we got into that, the opposite lane, the car was coming towards us. But then because we're driving on the opposite side of the road, he pulled to the wrong side. So mm -hmm. he actually pulled into the car and then he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And so um, that's basically how he died is because he, um, his aorta was, was um, sliced and it was from the impact of hitting the steering wheel. So um, uh, were you, were you awake in his oh last no. moments? No, we were, I was completely knocked on. Yes. I, I mean, we were both completely knocked unconscious and I have a very clear memory of coming to and having all these people trying to, like they couldn't open our doors. I mean, it was a really bad wreck. And um, and looking over at my dad and he's just clutching at his heart. I mean, we couldn't talk, but he's just like, he couldn't breathe. You know, all this blood is pouring into him. And then they got the doors open and got me out. And um, I didn't know what happened to him. And it was hours later, but I, and I kept asking them to tell me, you know, and I just, I just knew though, like, I just knew that, you know, looking over at him, that there was probably no way that he was gonna, um, sorry that he was gonna make it so, i don't know it's just so weird because so here i had this really tough relationship with this human being but i loved him so much and you know what and i was with him when he died so i can hear it yeah sorry no it's so hard yeah. So, um, but you know, it's been such a 
you know, and then it's just been such a journey, you know, um, because the legacy of, you know, that childhood that you grow up in, you don't ever get over it. You know, you have to work on these wounds like the whole rest of your life to kind of like figure out how to, like, I feel like that's the whole journey of my life is, is just to somehow become whole, you know, to kind of take all these fractured parts of me and, and, um, and, and take care of myself and learn to love myself and learn not to, um, beat myself up, you know, the way that, you know, my dad beat himself up, you know, emotionally and probably my mom did too. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work. It is. And I don't think everyone makes it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. I think there've been a lot of people placed in my life at different points that I think um, have shown me grace and have shown me the way and have loved me deeply. And I don't think if, you know, if if those people hadn't come into my life, I don't know if I would be where I am. So um, you, you said to me in an earlier conversation that you, you are now sober. Yep. And Um, so can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah, definitely. Because right after um, when I was dealing with my bulimia, my eating disorder, like I just transitioned, like I, I didn't learn how I didn't learn uh, a positive way to, um, to deal with all the anxiety and all the hurt and trauma I'd gone through. I instead just turned right to alcohol and I can remember it so clearly. Like I can remember being in college and going through all this therapy and, um, and being, having all the anxiety coming up and drinking a beer and and going, Oh, well now this will work instead of the food. And, um, I was 26 years old and I wrote in my diary that I was worried that I had an an alcohol problem. And I even went to an AA meeting at 26 years old and here I am 54 and, and I've been sober for almost six months. It took me that long to, to deal with it because I didn't want to look at it either. You know, it was just too scary to look at, to think that I might, um, have a problem with alcohol like my dad did. Um, but um what was the catalyst for you um my kids calling me out on it and um and me realizing that i was doing to my children what had been done to me and so um you know i wasn't i was very high functioning and i don't like the term alcoholic because i think it's i like i'd rather use the word alcohol use disorder because i think I think alcohol is a really dangerous drug and I think that it's something that is um, like nobody asks you if you quit eating peanut butter or drinking milk but if you aren't drinking alcohol everybody's like well why like what is wrong with you that you can't drink alcohol and it's a drug and it's it's you know and I think anybody has the potential to abuse alcohol. And I think a lot of people in our society do abuse alcohol. And um, so I, you know, was very high functioning. I got up every morning. I've always worked. I took care of my family. Nothing ever slipped. But every single night at the end of the day, I would pop that bottle of wine open and I would have a whole bottle of wine and sometimes a bottle and a half of wine. And my kids, you know, knew that about me. And, um, and my son texted a girl, uh, it was about a year and a half ago that um, his mom had a drinking problem. And I found that text and um, 
it was so deeply wounding to me, but I knew it was true. And, um, and he was speaking the truth. And as a child, I had been shamed. Like, I, like, you know, I wasn't allowed to speak the truth and I did not want my kids to have to go. I didn't want my kids to have to carry around a truth that was shameful to them. And so, um, it took me another, that was August of, uh, 2018. And it took me until June of 2019 to finally quit when my daughter like was getting frustrated with me and told me I was drunk like two months in a row. And, um, I just woke up one morning and I just knew I, I, I was done and I was tired of, um, I was tired of having alcohol control me every night I would say I'm not going to drink I'm not going to drink tonight and my husband would say I'm running to the store do we need anything and I would always just give in and say yeah can you get me some wine and (laughs) so um and it was just um and I think um and god it's so much better on this other side it's just amazing I had no idea that um that life could be um this much better. I just had no idea. I'd just been caught in the cycle of using alcohol to deal with, you know, uncomfortable feelings to numb myself, my whole adult life, my whole entire adult life. I used alcohol to numb uncomfortable feelings. And even when you were in therapy, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I never, because drinking is so, you know, like even when I decided to stop drinking and I came out publicly about it, most of my friends, like friends I grew up with, mom friends I've met since my kid, everybody was shocked. They just didn't, they didn't know that, you know, it was my dirty little secret again, you know, just like the eating was like, I knew how to, to behave in public, but at at home alone, when I'm feeling shitty about myself and I want to escape, that's when I was doing, you know, the majority of my drinking was, you know, if I went to a woman's night and I would have one or two glasses of wine, like everybody else, but I knew I had a whole bottle waiting for me when I got home that I could dive into. You know, it was just, it was just crazy making. Like, you're just on this cycle on this, you know. Did your husband mention it to you? You mentioned that your kids noticed it and called you out on it. Where was your husband in that? He was drinking right along with me. (laughs) So, um, you know, he never said anything to me. I think part of our relationship was based on we both like to you know drink and go to concerts and do stuff like that now he never um got like it doesn't affect him like it affects me he didn't drink as much as me but i drink everything fast i drink water fast i drink hot coffee fast so i kind of hid behind that a little bit you know like oh i didn't mean to you know Mm. um he never said anything but he's um he's really cut down his drinking and he's much like i am a much calmer human being like now that I don't drink and um, I've replaced it with positive things like, you know, I really do a lot of self care, um, which can look like anything like taking a hot bath at night and going to bed early to, um, you know, really unplugging from social media as much as I was plugged into that before not spending hours on Facebook. And um, I do, and I make, I meditate daily. That's become a huge part of my, um, of my practice of just getting grounded and centered and calm. And that really, you know, breath work, I think is something they should teach in school. I really strongly believe that breath work can just change, um, 
your energy in your body instantly. Like if you're feeling really overwhelmed, like if you really sit and just take some long, deep breaths, like it can dissipate like almost immediately. And it's a skill set I, I wish everybody would have. Mm, yeah. But um, so, yeah. So, are, so you, are your kids happy? Are your kids proud of you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the, the whole family dynamic has changed, I think. Um, and now my son is 15 and we have very open conversations about alcohol. And, you know, you know, alcohol makes you feel good when you first try it. You know, it is a way to escape and it, it does make you feel good when you first try it. And so we talk about that and I want him to understand. I want him to really understand what how alcohol affects the brain and um he's not quite ready for that yet but i want to have very i'm not i would never tell him not to drink it and i don't know if it if it would affect him the same way it would affect me you know but i just but i think as a society we need to be talking more openly about alcohol i mean the binge drinking epidemic in colleges is insane and this whole mommy needs wine culture is really messed up mommy doesn't need her wine every night she does not need her wine every night mommy needs to take a hot bath (laughs) (laughs) you know it's interesting i was at a store and they had canvas bags it's a very pretty grocery store out here and they have canvas bags and in the summer one was you know they're selling the reusable bags and it says in big big letters rosé all day yes and i thought huh you know could you you imagine yeah how do you pick up your kid from school if you've had rosé all day? <laughs> How do you make dinner and not burn yourself, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, and even like the culture here, like you go to yoga and maybe you can have, you know, they do it at a brewery and you can have a beer. I mean, it's just, it's so ingrained in our culture. And there seems to be a rising conversation more around um, sobriety or people taking, you know, like, um you know, in January and October, they, there's kind of two sober months. People try to take a break from drinking, but um, um, but like I couldn't. Like I remember trying to do a cleanse, and you had no alcohol for eight days, and I think I could get through three or four, and I was going out of my skin because I I really need I really thought I needed that glass of wine to to cope, and um, it's a fallacy. I mean, but it's one that's so ingrained in our culture and it's dangerous. And, um, did your um, mom drink very little? She was, uh, she was, my mom always took hot baths at night (laughs) and I never could understand how she could do that because I could never sit in the bathtub. And now I sit in the bathtub every single night. Like I've become my mother. It's so funny. (laughs) Um, and I'll take that side of it. Right. But she would have like one little glass of amaretto or something. She was a smoker though. She was a big, um, and that's what took her down was lung cancer. So, um, um, how was she at the end of her life and her reflections on the family she had helped create? You know, that's a good question. I, I think she was in denial. I'll be honest. I don't think she, she just never, she was sort of a immature soul as a human, which I know sounds kind of silly, but she just never, um, I don't think she ever really took responsibility for her role or never like, it was always, she always played victim a little bit. And, um, and I had a sister, um, at the end of her life, I had a sister that was in a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol and, um, and was in and out of rehabs and, and had a huge depression problems and had tried to commit suicide a couple times. And, and 
instead of my mom going out to help her, it would be me and I would be pregnant. I mean, my mom just didn't have the coping skills. I don't, I don't, I, the, I know I, I love my mom, but I'm so different than her. And I really never really truly understood her. I'm thankful for a lot of the great gifts that she's given me. Like I'm a, like I, I have a full-time drapery workroom where I sew every single day and that's a skill set she taught me. Um, and she was really creative and artsy and, and the biggest gift my mom taught me was, um, the power of female friendships because, um, I watched her just have all these relationships with women that she'd had her whole life. And some of those women have become my friends now that she's, um, that she passed away. But so that was probably her greatest gift to me because I do think that women need other women. I think, um, there's so much power in that. But other than that, like as someone I could talk to to get advice from, like she was never that person. Like I just never felt like if I had a problem, she was not the person I would go to. So, um, yeah. And your sisters, are you in touch with any of them now? Not really. I mean, not too much. I mean, I, and that was always a really hard thing. I really wanted my family family was always something that I felt very strongly about and wanted and that was very important and so that was always sort of a big loss for me but you know I've been gifted with my own children and my husband and his family and so I've just that's where my focus is you know I tried and um it is just a disaster (laughs) so Mm -hmm. and that's okay and that's something that instead of like that's okay and maybe when we're older you know maybe things will soften and um and maybe not, you know, but I, 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 um, I don't, but that's not anything I have control over. And I used to try to, I try, I used to try to, to have control over that and that, and that I don't have control over that. I only have control over, you know, that's one thing I really learned in my own sobriety journey as well is just drive your own bus, right? Like just, Mm. just be like, just take care of you. And that's, you know, that's all I have control over. Is, I don't even have control over my kids or what they're doing. You know, I can just, you know, I just have to drive my own bus. And same with my sisters. Like, they know I'm here. So um, it's pretty remarkable what you've come through and where you are now. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Are you still writing? Are you writing? Are there places where we, you know, I can read your work? Yeah, I started a blog um, called Detroit, Alabama, because I really... Um, I'm from Detroit, but um, I was transferred to Alabama, and um, it is my favorite place I ever lived, and I feel like this is um, where I've done a lot of growth, and it's where my, my first family was in Detroit, my second family is in Alabama, so it's called Detroit, Alabama, and I do, I just have a blog, I'm not real consistent on it, it's not, it's just where I write when I feel, um, and then Detroit, I am on Instagram at Detroit, Alabama as well, where I kind of that's where I journal about sobriety. Um, so that's okay. So, uh, so it. that's where, yeah, I think you, I hope you keep adding to your, your writing. Cause I think you have so many powerful things to say. I appreciate that. I really love it. It's, it's been a joy practice for me since I was a little kid because that's how I could handle, you know, some of the stuff I was going through. So, um, thank goodness, right. For writing. Yes, exactly. Yep. Thank you so much, Christine, for 
everything you brought to this conversation. I, I'm really grateful. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.